Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist and cause marketer who is passionate about social impact and sustainability. I'd like to invite all of you to join us for vibrant discussions about the topics we cover on this show and many more on Clubhouse. As with all of our platforms, our handle is at caremorebebetter. But for Clubhouse and Twitter, just leave out the final E and better and you'll find us. If you like what we're doing, you can support the show by sharing it with friends and keep it ad-free by donating directly on our site. Just visit caremorebebetter.com. Now, I started this podcast to invite you to care more about the issues that we all face around the globe so we can collectively improve our awareness and be better. Today, I have the opportunity of introducing you to a well-established not-for-profit that I knew virtually nothing about just a couple of weeks back, and that is AmeriCares. AmeriCares is a health-focused relief and development organization that responds to people affected by poverty or disaster with life-changing health programs, medicine, and medical supplies. Each year, AmeriCares reaches more than 90 countries, which also includes the U.S., with transformative health programs and quality medical aid. But perhaps even more interesting and inspiring is the guest who joins me to talk about what they do today, Stephanie Kaufman. She serves as the head of strategic partnerships for AmeriCares and has a really interesting history where she started working in museums and marketing, followed by a significant 16-year stint at Universal Studios that started in Florida and led her to Hollywood. She then took an entirely different path that landed her squarely in the not-for-profit sector, but I'll let her tell you that story. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm excited for our conversation today and I appreciate the space and the time that you give to folks like myself and also to the great work that NGOs are doing all around the world. As you mentioned, I don't have the traditional path into the NGO humanitarian aid space. For a majority of my career, I was in the entertainment business, working um, first with Universal Theme Parks and then Universal Pictures, and really working to bring corporations and brand partners into our theme parks and our movies. So if you were watching a movie and you saw a certain car, there's actually a, a partnerships team behind most studios that places cars and jewelry and products as a part of filmmaking. And then in theme parks, if you could only drink a Coca-Cola, there's a reason why. There's Mm. usually a partnership deal behind that. And I did that for a number of years and and really uh, learned so much about how to identify partnerships, how to cultivate relationships, how to unlock value on both sides for not only the the studio, but also for our brand partners and, and was really enjoying and loving that experience. But through that process, cancer had impacted my life through loved ones who were diagnosed with breast cancer. My mother was diagnosed with cancer research, and I got passionate about funding cancer research, which is significantly underfunded here in the U.S. And as I was in my career path at Universal, as happens to so many of us, changes happen. Um, Comcast, they had purchased Universal and was reorganizing, and I had an opportunity to 
relocate back to Orlando and, and look at some partnership opportunities within our theme parks and, and expansion we're doing in Beijing. And I thought, you know what, I've, I've had a great run. What, you know, what's kind of next? And as serendipity would have it, there was an opportunity that presented itself at the Breast Cancer Research Foundation, which is a foundation that was created by Evelyn Lauder of the Estee Lauder Companies that was focused on cancer research. And I thought to myself, this may be just the perfect time for me to flex into a new opportunity still within partnerships, which is a space that I love, but also to marry my passion around funding cancer research. And so that was literally kind of that moment of transition where, you know, life hands you a decision that, you know, either I was going to take this opportunity to stay with the company, but in a different capacity, or should I explore something new? That's what Mm -hmm. brought me to the Breast Cancer Research Foundation, where I ran global partnerships for uh, a little over five years. And what excited me about that was just creating partnerships that did accelerator funding for uh, cancer researchers around the world. What then brought me to AmeriCares was, again, life intervened. And unfortunately, due to the COVID-19 impact on several nonprofits, including the Breast Cancer Research Foundation, they had to make some changes and there was some restructuring and gave me a moment to really think about, okay, do I want to stay in the nonprofit space? Do I want to stay in global health? Or do I want to go back into entertainment? And for me, the path was clear. I was excited to stay in global health. I wanted to expand beyond cancer research. And, you know, like so many things in life, you have some friends. And I had a friend who I worked with at Universal. He was with Coca-Cola. He's now the chief marketing officer for AmeriCares and said, we've created this new role to really accelerate and innovate our partnerships. And we've posted it and let me know if you're interested. It's truly global health impact is disaster relief impact around the world. And that was going to give me another dimension to grow my experience, to grow my curiosity and to grow my impact in the space of partnerships. So that's a little bit about my winding path into the global humanitarian aid and health space. Right. Well, you've essentially utilized the same skill set, uh, the same basic set of, well, I would just imagine that the job hasn't changed all that much moving from entertainment into not-for-profit. But of course, the stakeholders you're talking to have changed. That's different, right? No, absolutely. I think, and, and it's certainly something I share with with folks who come to me and say, listen, I'm thinking about maybe transitioning into nonprofit. What do I need to know? And so, yes, a lot of the skills that I have in partnerships, that still remains very true to whether or not I was in the entertainment space or within the um, nonprofit NGO space, right? It's all about what partnership makes sense. Does it align with your values as an organization versus the company's values? Do those things align? Where do we deliver value together? And what is the impact that we're going to have? So that that translates anywhere from a partnership lens. However, to your point, the way that you talk about partnerships and, and the relationships that you have are in a much different way. So in the case of my my entertainment days, a lot of times I was engaging with the chief marketing officers who were looking for a marketing play, you know, within film and theme parks and and connecting with consumers. In the nonprofit space, when you're creating partnerships, even with corporate corporate companies who are looking to really lean into their responsibilities as a corporation, a lot of times that conversation is being had with the corporate social responsibility or the environmental, social, and governance team. And sometimes you do bring the marketing team um, into those conversations. And those conversations look a lot different. It's not how many 
you know, how many bottles of Coca-Cola am I going to be able to move with a phone promotion becomes, well, how will, you know, Coca-Cola's investment then this nonprofit will make impact effects. How are we going to impact people's lives? And that's a much more different conversation and in a lot of ways, much more fulfilling when you craft those, those conversations and those partners. In addition, it's not like, okay, now I get to get a filmmaker on board to like place this car into a film. And the conversations then happens with our programs team. Like, can this make sense? Can we make sure that the development funding opportunity isn't way ahead of where we are programmatically? Does this line up with our values as an organization and having that additional filter? So it definitely changes the conversation, but the skill set in terms of bridging those partnerships remain the same. Yeah. And I've done a bit of work in the international sphere myself. I will say that one of the things that I noticed when I was working in particular in the Asian community was that sometimes it felt like my gender itself would limit who I could talk to or what meetings I could have, or if I would have to bring a male counterpart with me in order for things to just feel a little better. Sometimes even if I was leading, I might have to take the back seat, if that makes sense. You know, I kind of lead from behind just because of cultural differences. So I wondered, given kind of the aim and the tilt of this podcast being one about social impact and sustainability, If you had some commentary on what it was like to work on a global scale for Universal Studios and how that might differ as you've transitioned into working on the not-for-profit side. It's definitely a great observation. And certainly as I was coming up through my career. Um, So I'm going to date myself. (laughs) I do that all the time. (laughs) A lot of times uh, I was the only woman in a room, you know, in terms of negotiating deals a lot of times I was seen as, oh, you must be the secretary and assistant. Now, I will say I was very fortunate to have exceptional male leadership that, you know, made sure that I was positioned effectively in the room and, and worked to ensure that I was seen in that space. I realized, particularly in a movie studio environment, that that, that wasn't always, you know, the case for some of my other colleagues. Um, certainly on an international basis, a lot of times to what you have said, you know, in meetings, and they would be looking to to the male executive who was maybe your direct report, several layers um, removed as you were leading the group. And so, you know, I would have to think through how do I manage that and how do I position myself, but also be appreciative of what the cultural norms are and and try to kind of navigate in order to to get those deals done. So it was also a lot of threading of the needles uh, to balance that. But at the same time, I would say I was in some ways, very fortunate that I did have some executive champions of my career that made sure that some of those stories that you hear about, while I certainly experienced it, weren't as pronounced um, in my experience. Yeah, I think that's lovely that you had that kind of leadership and champion and just being able to champion that from a more senior level even to yourself then. I have actually been in meetings where it seemed like, well, literally what would happen is I would present and then the person on the other side of the table would only respond to my male counterpart. It's like they would look them in the eyes and respond to almost what I had just said, which I think can be a really kind of displacing type of treatment that people, I think, have to adjust to and understand the cultural norms and the cultural differences. My background had been in anthropology, so I came at it from a different perspective. I was like, okay, well, how do we essentially get the deal done? please everybody in the room and ensure at the end of the day that we're putting one foot in front of the other. And so sometimes you just have to make certain concessions 
understanding that these are cultural differences that you can't just change overnight. It's not like flipping a switch. Absolutely. To your point, you're not going to change certain cultural norms. So the question is, is do your homework in advance. And a lot of times I would do that, particularly with, with certain international countries that I would go to. And then I would brief my team. Like More than likely, they're going to probably look to you, as I would say to you know, a male direct report. And here's how we're going to handle that in that meeting. Um, so that we can get what needs to be done and how we're going to talk it through and how we're going to script it out and role play. And I think that's important, especially for women in leadership is just really briefing yourself and preparing the room and understanding what's at play and how it's going to be handled and how are you going to handle those circumstances when, you know, to your point, you'll present, you're the lead on the deal. You're going to be the one who will close the deal you get to say whether or not the deal happens. And sometimes you'll have someone looking at, you know, at your male, your male counterpart and just talking <laughs> to them as if you didn't exist. Um, that's where I would always coach my male counterparts in direct reports. And, th- and thankfully they, they were, you know, in the same game with me to then, you know, gently lead the conversation back to Stephanie. Like, oh, well, Stephanie, her role is going to be this. Or, you know, Stephanie, what do you think? But I would say I was very fortunate in that my very awesome father always kind of made sure like that's how you kind of set up the room to the extent possible. And then sometimes, yeah, I'd have to check my ego at the door a little bit to say, okay, the deal needs to get done. I know what I'm dealing with. I've got support on the backside and we're just going to have to navigate through that. And eventually it comes to the finish line at some point. I'm hopeful like for my, my daughter's that some of that pre-gaming, if you will, it won't be as, as necessary as they enter the workforce. Well, I see it changing. And I, like yourself, may date myself in talking about some of this stuff too, because I mean, heck, my early career was in the late 90s and into the early aughts. So there's just a level of change that has been happening on a global scale, but it's often falls a little bit further behind where you'd like to see it. And so I just think it's important to approach those situations with grace and understand that people vary. They're not coming from an American perspective. They don't have the same media. They don't have the same cultural history. And so all of those things impact how they see one another and how they interact. And I just think when you're working internationally, it's important to kind of get centered with what the culture is like that you're going to be stepping into if you want to be successful, because ultimately, otherwise, you're just seen as some brazen American who doesn't care how they feel. <laughs> no, a- absolutely. And certainly working internationally, I spent the time to really get immersed in the corporate culture. What are the expectations in the meeting? How to conduct myself in the meetings? What type of outfits would be appropriate in terms of color? How to present my business cards? How to shake hands if that was appropriate or not appropriate. And I was very fortunate that I did have some resources behind that, but I would say any meeting that you're going into, and and, and certainly even today in the NGO space where you may be meeting with high net worth donors and, you know, what are their expectations or foundation partners? Now, how do they approach their meetings? You know, any of that type of homework and just really understanding the room that you're going into um, certainly helps move meetings along. And I would say, because of that background level of respect that I was trying to show, whether that was in Asia or quite frankly, um, Latin and South America, was actually very much appreciated. And I was able to, not always, but I was able to um, move through some meetings where I had to deliver 
very direct information, direct negotiations, a direct position of power ended up being received fairly well. I'm not saying it was always perfect. It wasn't. I had a scenario where I was in a room and I had to, there were some specific matters that we need to deal with corporate partners and some some um, expectations and, and legal obligations. And I had to be basically providing like, this is the way that this needs to happen. So here the American company is coming in. We're one of our partners. And I definitely had one male executive, you know, leave the room. He was not going to take this direction from uh, certainly from the Americans and certainly from a female. That's where I just kept the beat going on. And it was interesting. Some of the younger executives in the room apologized and they explained like it's a cultural norm in terms of age and to just uh, appreciate that what we needed to get done was going to get done. So there's there's an interesting shift that's happening. And what I will say too, is that when you make the effort to present your business card as a, for example, in a, a way that that culture is used to receiving it. I think in most Asian cultures, you basically turn it around to face them and hand it to them holding both corners facing them, right? So they see the card before they grab it. And when I have been in international meetings with people from China and I believe Japan as well, I got that kind of bright smile on their face because they weren't as accustomed to consistently receiving that kind of respect from some blonde, white American female that didn't necessarily have as obvious a connection to their culture. So I just think that's, it's important to think about, you know? I think those those details matter, right? Someone is, if you will, welcoming you into their house. Mm-hmm. And so when you get welcomed into someone's house, you try to think about what's going to be important when I'm a guest. And it's not always about how we do it in America. It's really being thoughtful and mindful of how we approach that work in the country that you're doing business in. At AmeriCare is that a lot of times there's this perception like the NGO just comes in and they come into you know these regions as we're going to be the saviors. We're going to tell you what's how it's going to be done and then we'll leave. And mm-hmm. you know one of the things that we're working on to be really thoughtful and I think it's a huge shift in NGO is respecting that house right and the idea of what do our partners on the ground who are local what innovations are they doing what solutions are they presenting and then how do we as an NGO and a partner say, okay, that's fantastic. We're going to take all of your learnings and then help build that capacity. And so I think that there's just a, a great connection in terms of what you're talking about. It's like when you go into a country, really respect the knowledge that's on the ground, respect the innovations that are happening, and then where can you add value? Yeah, that brings me to a later question um, that I drafted for you, which is really around how AmeriCare's operates a little differently than some of the other large NGOs that we might have heard about. In our initial conversation, you mentioned how many offices you're operating around the globe. So I personally found it really interesting when you started to talk about how you set those offices up. So please share. Yeah, no, absolutely. For AmeriCares, we've been in the humanitarian aid and disaster relief space for over 40 years. Basically, we were started with this premise of how do we help cities and communities and then certainly around the world that have been impacted by disaster? How do we go in and, and give them access to medicine, supplies, and emergency aid? We have great fortune here in the U.S. to be able to do that and, and certainly within the U.S. and outside the U.S. A lot of times as you go into disaster areas, it's in the news for a couple of weeks and then we move on. But 
lot of times disaster relief and recovery takes years. You know, where we have looked at is where are the places that we can certainly make an impact over the long term, not just parachute in, here's the maid and parachute out, but how do we help rebuild infrastructure? How do we help create the, the thriving health centers so that people can get access back to good health? Because without good health, children can't go to school. Without good health, you cannot work. You cannot support your family. So, you know, we've been very strategic in where we've been able to create those country offices where we can have a long-term impact. You know, we just don't want to go into a country and say, okay, this doesn't work. It's also about where we can be complementary as opposed to just additive, right? And just adding on to NGO after NGOs. Like, where can we bring a specific expertise um, into? And I think an area that we have specific expertise is in access to medicine. We're the leading nonprofit provider of donated medicine and, and medical supplies. And a lot of communities you know, around the world don't have access to that. So how can we enable that? So we're operating everywhere from Colombia to Malawi to Tanzania to Liberia to the Philippines to Haiti to, um, you know, we have a sustained presence in Puerto Rico after you know, Hurricane Maria. And then obviously our corporate headquarters are in Stamford, Connecticut, which is where we were founded. And we're just really thoughtful about where can we deepen engagement, where can we enable global or local involvement and, and have the right impact. Great. So what I would love for you to be able to do for us is to highlight a specific story, or perhaps it's something like hurricane relief that you were able to initiate as an organization, or maybe it's even the simple story of a a single family that you were able to positively affect that dealt with some horrendous challenges that may have been somewhat different than what we'd hear about every day. One of the stories I was struck by was an incredible gentleman, his name is Dwayne. And he is a truck driver and he was impacted um, living in Texas. He was impacted by Hurricane Harvey. The aftermath of the storm destroyed his house. So he was, you know, without a home, his health was failing. Um, He was dealing with with diabetes. You know, we worked with our local community partners on the ground in terms of, you know, immediately getting supplies, everything from water to insulin, all of those things for Dwayne. But So while there were certainly organizations that could help him rebuild a house, the the reality is his diabetic condition was impacting his ability to do his job and he was going to lose his job Um, as a result. So he came into one of our um, mobile clinics, our free clinics and our partners in this space, is really working with folks who are uninsured or underinsured and give them access to health. And so we were able to really get his diabetes under control, get him access to insulin, get him access to be able to check his condition. And I'm happy to say that as a result of that, his health vastly improved. We were able to create a a real schedule for him. He's now driving his truck again. He has rebuilt his house. He is married to a wonderful woman. They've got two stepchildren together. And it's really about how we can take a disaster And then also look at it more than just the disaster, but what are the health impacts and how do we help people reach their full potential and get back on their feet? I just am really inspired by what we were able to accomplish with Duane and the the life that he's leading as a result of of the health care treatment that he probably would not have had access to otherwise. Well, that's beautiful. In our first episode, we talked about Refugees of Greece and how Love Without Borders for Refugees in Need serves a community there. In our initial conversations, you talked a bit about what AmeriCares is doing specifically to help migrants from Venezuela. 
I'd love to hear more about that and how AmeriCares is supporting these people who have been displaced and who may not have the access to the medical care they need to survive their journeys. This is another program that we are particularly proud of and and highly invested. So AmeriCares has actually been working in Colombia since 1985. And Colombia, you know, faces a number of barriers in improving healthcare due to, you know, wide-ranging landscapes, having one of the largest internally displaced populations in the world, you know, as a result of armed conflict. And certainly in 2018, we began uh, operating medical clinics in Colombia to provide that there's essential primary care services and, and access to medicine for the migrants who are fleeing the humanitarian uh, emergency in Venezuela. These are folks who are normally not going to be covered under you know, national government plans. And certainly with the rise of COVID-19, our clinics, um, and we operate 10 clinics in Colombia, and we work very closely with the ministries of health. As you can imagine, we've had to adapt our work there to manage the unprecedented demands of, of this crisis. So we, we do everything to really focus our efforts of providing healthcare services, PPA, helping to educate, you know, um, hygiene and sanitation and access to, to clean water. But we're also really focused on predominantly women who are pregnant, who are, you know, fleeing what's happening in Venezuela, children. And we're also working to deliver critical mental health services to this very vulnerable po- population. You can only imagine you're fleeing conflict you're in this state of limbo. Governments are, you know, kind of put you into this re- refugee zone. And not only do you have to worry about healthcare and getting access to healthcare and medicine, as, which should be, you know, in our mind, healthcare should be a fundamental right. It's a human right. But also just the mental health impacts of fleeing on top of what's your future going to look like for your family. And then, you know, layering on top of that COVID-19. So we're doing a lot of mental health service work, not only for the patients and clients that we serve in our Colombian health clinics to the Venezuelan migrant refugee population. We're also doing a lot of mental health support services for the healthcare providers in those clinics, particularly as we're navigating through COVID-19 and the impacts of that. Wow. Well, COVID has just made our life so much more complicated around the globe, right? The things that were once a little simpler have been made more difficult. Now, I imagine people in these areas uh, may not have the same access to the personal protective equipment like masks and things like that as well, or the same access to being able to clean reusable ones. I think the work you're doing there is just phenomenal. We've provided more more than 14 million protective supplies, including PPE and disinfectants, um, on top of medicine, supplies, training, mental health support during this crisis. Wow. And we're grateful and thankful to our donors and our partners in giving us the capacity to be able to, to do that work. Now, if there's one thing that you're currently doing with AmeriCares that puts spring in your step in the morning, what is it? Health equity has always been the lens of, of what we do, right? It's about delivering health to populations who are not a part of the discussion and conversation. Something that we are really, and what I get motivated around is, for, particularly in COVID-19, is how do we create equity for communities around the world? And how do we specifically create vaccine equity? Because no one's safe until everybody is safe. And so, you know, here in the U.S., we have... Two million people who rely upon free and charitable health clinics for their care, and they become trusted partners 
And they're currently not a part of the dialogue as to where vaccines are going to be administered. And so AmeriCare is, we are, we are certainly at the forefront of having those discussions with, with the, administ- the uh, Biden administration on how do we, how do we make sure that these free and charitable clinics are, are part of the vaccine rollout and creating equity. And we're also looking at that, you know, while the COVAX facility for vaccines um, is going to cover a lot of international, there's a, a ton of gaps, like I just mentioned with Colombia and Venezuela. Those Venezuelan migrants are not a part of um, vaccine national rollout. So where can we play a role to fill those gaps? Everything from storing vaccines to figure out how to work with partners to procure a vaccine, to administer it so that we can not only have equity, but also this notion of making sure that everybody's safe from this and we can move into whatever the new normal is. So very focused and puts the pep in my step on how do we create that health equity. Right. Well, it's emergent, right? So that's the right now moment. I wonder if there is anything that you're doing in particular with the U.S. homeless populations around that particular effort? We definitely, within our global health network and, and certainly here in the U.S., we have over a thousand um, health clinics. And so a lot of times what we are doing is working with several partners on the, uh, within the homeless communities to give them access to water, give them access to PPE, give them access to sanitation and hygiene to help curb the spread, working with our clinic partners and, and providing them with you know grant funding to help them do their work. We also believe like if we have partners on key areas, and certainly I know particularly in key states, you know, California in terms of what those experiences are, like how do we just help build that capacity for those local health partners not come in, but give them the funding that they need to help serve those populations who, again, are not going to be included in PPE distribution and sanitation. And so we actually have sanitation, things that we're doing with our health partners that will give that access to fresh water, clean water to allow homeless populations to, to help curb that spread. That's great. Now let's look five years down the road. In your ideal world, what would be the change that you would have achieved with AmeriCares? What I hope for is that we will be able to continue to, the needs are so great around the world as with so many things um, in the humanitarian aid, aid space, you know, a lot of this can be solved for through impact investing and finances. So I, I would hope five years from now that uh, we've been able to double our support from corporates and foundations to accelerate our work. I'm hoping that um, and making those investments and making those impacts, I hope that we can continue to work to help communities prepare for and respond from disasters and that we will also work, I know this sounds, you know, something that everybody's talking about, but how can we really effectively, uh, five years, I'd love to be able to see that we are closing the disparities that exist in healthcare for communities who've been left out of the conversation. And so for me, running strategic partnerships, I'm looking forward to, you know, doubling and tripling the types of impact investments that we're going to see out of corporations and, and foundations to help us drive that market. Now, if somebody wants to get involved today and support the work that you're doing with AmeriCares, how would they go about doing that? There's a couple of different ways. I mean, I would encourage anyone to go to americares.org. I do want to preface that a lot of our volunteer opportunities are highly specialized because we are a health response organization. So we're always looking to mobilize our emergency response responders, and that's everyone from doctors to nurses to EMTs. So if if there's an interest, particularly as travel restrictions hopefully start to abate, 
where we can mobilize that roster to provide healthcare opportunities and healthcare access around the world, we would encourage anyone to reach out. Certainly, there's a lot of different ways that you can support AmeriCares, and, and we're looking forward to the day when we can be back in person. We do a lot of great, you know, putting together emergency relief kits together, and that's always kind of a, a wonderful thing that we love to engage our donor community around and helping us prepare those things. So I would just encourage folks to go to americares.org. You can reach me there, and we'd love to find the right place for you to help support the work that we're doing. Yeah, that's great. I mean, one of the things we often say on the show is that, you know, it doesn't have to be a Herculean effort. It could just be paying forward some of your skills or just saying, hey, I'm here and these are my skills. I can support in this way if you need it. A hundred percent. The way that you can support an organization. And one of the things I, I like to dispel the myths is, right, and I know that the nonprofit industry doesn't always do the best job around this, but you'll see like, so-and-so foundation gave $10 million. And so if you're a donor, you're like, you know, wow, what is my $5 going to do? Let me just say that that $5 may be that moment that enabled medicine to reach someone who, uh, to reach somebody who not have had, would have had it otherwise. And I think we, as, as an industry, if you will, need to do a better job of talking about the impacts of where everybody else can support. And it's $10 million gifts are phenomenal. Right. They, they may be what runs the nuts and bolts of the organization, right? Yeah, that's what's lost in the conversation is $5 gifts, $10 gifts, those adds up. And there is a moment in time when that $5, $10, $20 gift, that supportive time created a pivotal moment that allowed us to have a breakthrough. If someone was asking me, like, what could nonprofits do a better job of? Certainly talk about the, the investments that are being made at a, a high level, but make sure that you're honoring and creating storytelling around. Right as everyday gifts that are truly making a difference. Well, perhaps take a page from what people are doing in the politics space where they say their average donation is X dollars. I think um, AOC has been really a proponent of that, right? Saying that her average donor is something like less than $20. So if you take that $10 million, perhaps that's one of the high-end things that keeps the lights on and the office running and all your employees paid but the work that's getting done on the ground is actually being paid by those grassroots efforts and the $5 here and there donations, uh, the recurring donations that many people choose to make to their favorite charities. That is what essentially creates the opportunity for them to continue putting positive change out there. A hundred percent. And it's got to be the blend. Everybody has a role to play. I'm always so thankful. Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about before we wrap the show up is really any advice that you might have for someone that is interested in a pivot, perhaps from a for-profit company, I should say, to the not-for-profit sector or to the social impact sector. There are some for-profit companies that are really rooted in giving back. So I don't want to kind of put them off in the same field. But if we're to consider making that shift and going to work for a more cause-oriented effort, you know, what does that look like? How do you make that shift? The, the knowledge that you could share from your own experience, I think, would be really valuable. So a couple of things. Number one, I think just like any job search, you know, be really specific about what you are interested in. So if you tell me that I, I'd love to switch into nonprofit, well, what does that mean? Are you passionate about, what are you passionate about? You know, and by the way, do you want to make that your job? So if you are passionate about pets and dogs and animal, you know, but you want to get in that space, is that something you want to move that forward? Uh, so number one, 
be passionate, know what your passions are and where you can add, where you can add value. Number two, I think sometimes I will hear like, oh, well, I've earned, you know, I've learned, I've earned, and I want to return. And, and it's like, no, these are a, a lot of nonprofits are unbelievably, you know, sophisticated, professionalized, um, you know, you think about what skill sets you bring to the table that's going to advance that work. If you understand partnerships and consumer engagement, that's fantastic. If you have a communications background, then what can you bring to the table to elevate that nonprofit's work? Number three, I would say research the nonprofits that you're interested in and get to know who they are as an organization and really understand their mission and like where you would fit in. And then also understand the help of that organization. What I really appreciate about AmeriCare is when I was pursuing this opportunity to join AmeriCare, number one, they had the strategic plan on their website. So I was like, this is great. This shows me what they're looking to accomplish in the next five years. Their financials are on their website. And by the way, any good nonprofit whether you're looking to invest as a donor, you're looking to join as an employee, any good nonprofit worth being a part of needs transparency. So nonprofits should have their IRS 990 statements, that's their um, financials, all of that on their website and easily to access. And that'll give you a sense of how healthy the organization is financially and also shares the expense ratios, where they're investing those dollars. And I would recommend that you do that research. And finally, if you're thinking about making this change, like anything else, network. Start reaching out to those nonprofit leaders that you're, you're fascinated by the work and get to know them and request interviews and get your name out there. And certainly volunteer, offer to be on an advisory council. And so that'll give you some depth and breadth into, into the nonprofit space. But there's so many tremendous opportunities out there. Um, and if you decide to make the pivot, I will tell you it's just so fulfilling to do the work that I'm able to do every day through partnerships and be focused, be passionate, and really understand the type of nonprofit you would want to make a contribution to. Right. Well, I think that's all very good advice. I would add to that something. You mentioned interviews. Sometimes the not-for-profits you might be interested in may not have the proper fit for you. But one thing that I've found to be successful in my own kind of career and networking experience is to ask for what's called an informational interview. Say, I'd just like to get to know your not-for-profit and how you do the work you do. I'm really interested in being in a role similar to yours at some point in my career, and I could use your thoughts and offer to buy them lunch. I mean, the reality is right now, we don't have as much of that liberty with COVID, but you could still meet over Zoom. You could send them a $5 gift card to Starbucks and you can both enjoy your coffees virtually. I do informational interviews all the time. And, and one of the things that I believe, particularly, you know, women's issues, women in leadership, passion point for me. So I'm a big believer if I get somebody who reaches out to me and says, hey, I'm interested in, in exploring this or I have a friend, I'm always willing to give up give up my time to create that informational interview and help guide somebody if this is going to be the right career opportunity or trajectory. I've been fortunate that people have done that for me and I believe you have to pay that forward. So I think that's fantastic advice. As for the informational interviews, I think you'll find nine times out of 10 people will say yes, yeah. 100%. Well, I've even in my own roles um, used those as an opportunity to really keep an eye on where I might have an opportunity within the organization oh, hey, we got this funding and we have this need in this one area. Would that person be a fit for that? I mean, maybe they'd be it. Maybe they'd be interested. So I think that's really great. Um, I also would say 
that volunteering aspect can play into that plan too. So if it happens to be a not-for-profit that you're able to volunteer some of your experience too in kind of this trial effort in a way, like, is this something I really want to do or somebody I really want to work for? And perhaps that's a foot in the door, almost like an unpaid internship that takes a few hours out of your week. So especially if during this time of COVID, you've been impacted with the loss of a job, perhaps that's something you might consider doing. It will add to your resume. I know sometimes these gaps in employment can look really bad and we feel like it's a negative reflection on ourselves. So you could even just take this opportunity to say, hey, you know, what what kind of charities would I want to get involved with? And is this an opportunity for me to think with that through? And perhaps it's even working with AmeriCares. Absolutely. I would love to just offer you the floor. And if there's any question that you wish I'd asked that I haven't yet, or anything that you would like our audience to walk away from today's interview thinking about, what would you have to say? Well, thank you for your time. I would, I would encourage your audience to continue to be invested in the great work that um, nonprofits are doing locally in your community. Um, take the time to get to know that, line it up with your passions and figure out ways to, to certainly get involved to the extent the impact that you can have at a local level and then at a national level cannot be understated. I would also like to just put out there, I think that the lines between mission-driven organizations and even corporations in terms of their social impact are starting to blur. If you're in the for-profit space or the private space, take a look at what your company is doing in terms of their social impact, where you can play a role in terms of furthering your company's social impact, how you can leverage their incredible resources and um, volunteer to be a part of those efforts and getting involved. And if you're, if the company that you're working for is maybe not quite there yet, look to where where you could play a role in creating social impact at the companies you work for. All of us have an opportunity to make impact in what we do every single day. If you're on the nonprofit side, certainly it's working with great donors to to bring impact together. But if you're on the private side, I would highly encourage take a look at what your company's doing and figure out where you can play that role and and have an impact yourself. Completely agree. It's something I think I've taken almost every job I've had, even if it was just Karina being the recycling nut that said, hey, can we take all these single-use papers and turn them into notepad tablets that we can all use? (laughs) I would encourage everyone to think about small acts sometimes can have the most transformative impact. Know that anything that you can do in this space does have an impact. Think about, you know, whether that's instituting recycling at your company, offering up, putting up bicycle racks so that people can lessen the reliance on cars to get to work. The things that you can do to maybe improve mental health and health impacts and self-care, all of those things will have an impact and that impact ladders up to some big transformations. And we're certainly seeing it um, as a result of COVID-19. And I don't think anybody wants to go back to maybe the pre-normal, but I think a new normal in terms of all the impacts that people are having on people's lives are going to transform us for the better. I couldn't agree more. Well, Stephanie, I want to thank you so much for your time today. It's been my pleasure to have you on, learn more about your path and also everything positive that you're doing with AmeriCares. So I'll look forward to keeping in touch as I observe this journey um, and perhaps even contribute a bit of funds myself. I've got some meager donations I can make on an annual basis while I'm paying for grad school, but, and raising two boys. Wow. <laughs> My hat's off to you. That's, that is extraordinary. 
And thank you for what you're doing to giving voice to folks like myself to share our stories so that we can all care more and be better. Thank you. Now, I'd like to invite our audience to act. That action could be as simple as sharing this podcast with people in your community, or you could even go to americares.org and see how you might be able to get involved. To find suggestions like this, visit our action page on caremorebebetter.com. There you'll find causes and companies that we encourage you to support. Some of them are NGOs, not-for-profits. Others are cause-partnered organizations that really go ahead and put more of their profits into great social impact strategies. There you'll find all sorts of suggestions. And I invite you to join the conversation. Be a part of the community we're building. You can follow us on social spaces at Care More Be Better. And on Clubhouse and Twitter, just leave out that final E and better and you'll find us. You can send us a DM on any of these platforms or an email to hello at caremorebebetter.com. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we can do so much more. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.